Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. We are back in the studio after a long Labor Day weekend away. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you get up to? Oh, you know, I just uh, I went to a densely populated area yeah. and hung out, took some notes. Yeah. Watch my fellow humans. Oh, yeah. Good weekend. Good weekend then. Yeah. What about you? Well, I ventured, uh, uh, my wife and I ventured up into uh, the hills of rural Tennessee and uh, I actually visited the farm, which is, of course, the, the hippie commune there in middle Tennessee, um, famous for its midwifery and, uh, and, and soy products and tempeh and, and all this, uh, which, which was pretty interesting. But I was also talking to my mom, uh, who's a kindergarten teacher. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she reminded me of, of this really cool phenomenon that kind of ties in with today's episode. You know how it is with classroom sizes. Oh, yeah. Talk about dense populations. Yeah. You end yeah. up throwing in more and more kids, especially at the beginning of the class. So my mom will start off a school year and she'll have just an exorbitant number of, of kindergartners in mm-hmm. there. But inevitably, what will happen is that one or two of the kindergartners will develop an extra large jaw mm-hmm. with with extra large teeth, mm-hmm. and then it will that kindergartner will eat several of the other kindergartners, thus balancing out the population in the classroom. And then for, from then on, for the rest of the year, everything's a little more normal. Yeah, it's one of those things that that people don't normally talk about, yeah. right? But I mean, it's uh, it's pretty standard in public schools, at yeah, least yeah. in the United States. Yeah, and it is a good way to sort of weed down the population and make it manageable. <laughs> so yes, uh, indeed, we are talking about uh, population density and its effects on organisms. Um, the uh, the kindergartner thing we just uh, went through there, uh, we will explain in a little more d- uh, detail uh, because because uh, what we really want to talk about here is the comparison that can be made between. Um, Various organisms and their ways of dealing with uh, with population density and resource shortage, and uh, humanity's own ways of dealing with it, where we're similar, where we're very different, and where uh, even our different approaches are kind of achieving the same ends. Yeah, and this is where the dun 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 part comes <laughs> in because we've talked about this before, and it's coming. Twenty fifty, it is estimated that we will add another two point five billion people. That's a lot of people. So we're at about 7 billion right now. And right now, 50% of us mm-hmm. live in cities. But by 2050, three-fourths of us, or excuse me, two-thirds of us, 75% of us will be living in cities. And what does that spell for us? That's, that's going to be a lot of people elbow to elbow. Uh, so we want to talk about this a little bit and talk about, partic- in particular, resources that are and aren't available in this scenario. Right, because we're talking about more and more people that need more and more resources, obviously. And uh, are we going to be able to meet that need? Are we space-wise? Are we going to be able to meet that na- need? We've we've devoted an entire episode in the past to discussing this, and about even even if you started building these vertical cities, even mm-hmm. if you 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 become smarter and smarter with how how you use available space, can you actually keep up with the with the demand? Well, yeah, we've talked about vertical farming as as a possible um, solution to this, but the fact of the matter is is that to feed that many people, food production will need to grow by 70%. Yeah. That's huge. And to say nothing of drinking water, which which continues to yeah. be this big illusion here, especially in the United States and, and I guess much of the Western world, where drinking water is considered this just, there's just no end to it, right? It's cheap. It's everywhere. We poop into it. 
which continues to just like once once you you really think about that mm-hmm. and and lord knows i spent a lot of my life not thinking about that but once you really think about the fact that in the united states we have clean drinking water yeah. that we defecate into whereas on the other side of the the world you have people who who don't even have access to that clean drinking water or certainly not as regular access. Yeah, we could do an entire podcast yeah. on that. And in fact, we probably that's a, a topic that we should uh, investigate further. But yes, that's a huge problem um, on the horizon, certainly for the West. And yeah, it's because this a dream right scenario is not going to continue for, for, the, for the world. No, no. And um, just to add a little more information to that whole water scenario, current agriculture practices um, use 70% of the freshwater resources and then it renders a lot of that really unsafe to drink because of pesticides and fertilizers. Mm-hmm. So there you go with that. Um, so obviously we're going to need some more solutions in the future here to fix that problem. And there's another thing that we're not quite focused on here in the West, and that um, is the existence of slums. Okay, so when I talked about the fact that 50% of us now live in cities and that 75% of us in 2050 will live in cities, the United Nations and the World Health Care Organization all say that it's very possible that half of, of the people who are living at cities at that point in 2050 will be living in slum cities. Mm-hmm. Again, this is not something that, uh, particularly in the United States, that we that is front and center for us, but in India and other places throughout the world, you know, we've seen this uh, borne out. So that's something to think about um, in terms of resources and how we're all going to get along and what's going to be available to us. In fact, the UN says in its State of the World Cities report that we're moving toward mega regions that create miles upon miles of what they call endless cities capable of holding up to 100 million people. So, in, you know, keep this in context. Maybe you live in a city right now that has 300,000 people, and that seems quite large. That really is nothing in comparison to, you know, 40 years out from now when you have these huge sprawling cities across miles and miles of land. So let's turn our attention to the animal world How to, and, and, and take a look at how certain organisms deal with overpopulation because this is a, something that has occurred you know, since time out of mind. You have a successful organism in a given environment. Mm-hmm. It's going to keep growing and growing, but it's eventually going to press the envelope. You know, it's going to reach that point where it's it's not sustainable within its own environment. Resources are going to dwindle and something's going to have to give, right? So one of the more remarkable examples uh, of this we see with the tiger salamander, which you find um, in North America. It ranges from Florida to northern Mexico, southern Canada, Rocky Mountains. Uh, it hibernates during winter, and during the summer rains, uh, it migrates in large numbers to breeding ponds. Uh, This is where the males compete for for females, and after mating, a female lays one or more eggs, uh, egg masses, uh, that have 25 to 50 eggs each, depending upon the Mm -hmm. particular subspecies of the salamander. All right, the eggs hatch in approximately four weeks into larvae, and these larvae have these feathery gills. You've probably seen photographs. They're they're cute and weird and and, uh, wonderfully beautiful in their own subterranean way. Slightly prehistoric. Yeah. And so these larvae feed on aquatic insects, small invertebrates, and, and even some s- small fish. And uh, the larvae remain in these ponds until late, early August, uh, well, late July, early August, and then transform into air-breathing sub-adults, which are four to five inches in rank- length. But this is where it gets really interesting. Um, 
the tiger salamander is particularly unique because the eggs can develop into two types of larvae and ultimately three types of adults. Now, but those two types of larvae, that's where it gets interesting. And this is where I got the, 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 the deal for the kindergarten example earlier. Uh, the two types of larvae that are produced are normal mm-hmm. t- tiger salamander larvae. Plankton eating Yeah, just tadpoles. eating plankton. And then there are the cannibal morphs. The cannibal morphs, uh, these larvae have larger heads, bigger mouths, more well-developed teeth, and when ponds start to dry up and other food sources become scarce, the cannibal morph larvae then turn on the other salamander larvae in the pool with them and start eating them, gobbling them up and growing faster. They're maturing at a, at a faster rate, and they're achieving adulthood at a faster a- rate while eating the uh, competing larvae. Uh, now, it's worth noting that they do, they, they do not eat kin larvae unless resources are particularly Right, Right. unless they're in dire straits, then they'll eat their brother or sister. Yeah, so if it's a kindergarten classroom, just know that if a brother and sister are in the (laughs) same room and one of them develops that extra-large cannibal jaw, uh, it's not going to eat its uh, sibling. And this is called genetic polyphenism, and I think it's fascinating because it is a response directly to the environment, right? So if they begin to run into each other, if they're feeling, you know, if the larvae are are, uh, detecting that the environment and the resources are shrinking then they will respond in one of two ways. Yeah, it's kind of like how Iron Man has different armors for different things. Yeah. Like if he's battling Hulk, he has like a Hulkbuster armor, and if he's battling Thor, he has a Thorbuster armor. Um, and it and the the environmental stimuli depends uh, dictates uh, which armor Tony Stark is going to put on. It's kind of like that, except on a on a, um, a genetic level and in response to environmental stimuli, uh, which form this uh, salamander will take. All right. Um, so let's look at another example of a high-density population with creatures. This is also an example of genetic uh, polyphenism, except uh, a little less um, grisly in a way, mm-hmm. because uh, the two types that you see, there's a gregarious morph and a solitary morph. And the gregarious morph are, is the one that arises as response to population density, and it's more adept at flying, so it can get the heck out of Dodge. Right, so, and it can find other patches of right. grass or other resources. Yes, so this would be, uh, in a kindergarten classroom environment, this would be the child that, instead of developing giant jaws to gobble down its classmates, it would sprout beautiful wings and then fly <laughs> to a less populated like, classroom. The, the kid who would pull the fire alarm. Or yes, Just yes. get out of Dodge, <laughs> as you say, yeah. Um, and then there are swarm crickets which I think are really interesting. Um, these are Mormon crickets. This, this is a good example. Um, they're, they themselves are a good source of protein okay, and salt. So they're just naturally going to be delicious to one another they're anyway. Like, they're like little beef jerky nuggets, right? Exactly, exactly. Like think of, like for instance, if, if uh, us humans were covered in bacon mm-hmm. and resources were low and like we kept smelling bacon, each like other. Like straight up like fried bacon Skin. Bacon skin, yeah. yeah, and we're just cruising around. There's not much to eat. We might, might turn to one another and say, hmm, you look delicious. That's one thing to think you always keep in mind about cannibalism uh, in humans is that um, humans tend to go for cooked food with, with a few rare exceptions. But, it, but certainly when it comes to eating other mammals, we tend to like it cooked, and, uh, and we're not that so much into just eating it living off the bone. But if but if we were, would that change the uh, the Are you argument? saying would we just peel off a limb? 
Like yeah, right now, exactly. would I just like pull off one of your digits here? Like if everybody's skin was like already like tandoored and cooked and, and, and seasoned and all, I mean, it would it would be a different proposition. Is all. Uh, is it wrong that I'm salivating a little bit <laughs> and I'm a vegetarian? Uh, but no, the, these it's true. These guys are they're chock full of protein. They they are in the right circumstance, delicious to one another. These these um, Mormon crickets, and they actually create these migratory formations. Okay. So um, this actually creates an order, this march that they, they conduct. And the reason why it creates this order is because they're, they're marching in mass and they're moving, like each cricket is moving away from the one behind it toward the one in front of it. Mm-hmm. And it puts them in a, in a very strange position in which they are both the prey and the predator. So they're, they're marching. Each one is marching towards a cannibalistic feast and mm-hmm. away from a cannibalistic death. Yes, and again, this is in in the case where the population gets very high and resources mm-hmm. are dwindling. But uh, to me, this is the more psychological example or of a terror actually than the salamander because those guys they just come at you with with big jaws and you know it's the end. But yeah, and it's kind of like it's not nothing personal; it's business. Yeah. Now I've got a giant jaw with which to eat you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I developed that just for this purpose. But yeah. this other one, it's like every, every, you know, it's eat or be eaten. Yeah, and and the important thing is that the cannibal morph is sort of like all right, we got to roll out the cannibal model to deal with this market, whereas the crickets are everyone is already on board with cannibalism. It's just it, yeah, they're ready to go. Yeah. Um, now, primates, we, we have seen instances of cannibalism before right. in primates, but generally this is not something that is um, is the norm. Yeah. As we discussed, we had an episode called Fine Young Cannibals, I believe, mm-hmm. which uh, I, I we found out after we released it that I think some people skipped over it because they thought it was going to be about human cannibals, which can be is a fascinating topic, but can be a, a more disturbing topic that some listeners want to hear about. That uh, episode is entirely about animal cannibals, cannibalism right. as an economic factor uh, in various organisms. And uh, and, and uh, as we highlighted in that episode, cannibalism on an economic level, remove all the moral, um, you know, what have you, uh, on, a, on, a, on a biological economic level, it can be a very good proposition. But it but while it jives really well with some animals, like these, uh, like the crickets, mm-hmm. the Mormon crickets, it doesn't necessarily work so well with other modes of life. Well, and like primates are a good example right. because they're highly social, just like we are. So um, it's sort of bad form to go around eating one another. Um, so that generally doesn't happen in a primate uh, community. And I wanted to. So we do, this is why we don't see cannibal morphs um, among primates, and certainly not in actual kindergarten classrooms outside of my imagination. No, no. Yeah. But if we did, uh, could you imagine like these giant jaws on, yeah. on great apes? I just, I, all I can picture heads. is the uh, like the classroom page in the yearbook and you being able to pick <laughs> out the cannibal morphs like, ah, look at the mouth on that one. That one, whoa, whoa, yeah. Oh, Jimmy, you're going to have to watch out for that one next year. Well, they get they, they become biters at that age, too. Uh, not to not to feed this absurd notion any. I see what you're have, saying. But. You're trying to make us all feel like there's a, the undercurrent of, of possible cannibalism <laughs> in the elementary set. Um, I am going to pull this information, or just actually um, just highlight this information from a paper called "Sociality in the City: Using Biological Principles to Explore the Relationship Between High Population Density and Social Behavior." Yes, by uh, Daniel O'Brien. Yes, and uh, and we'll link to this in the blog uh, post that accompanies this uh, episode. But the entire paper is available in PDF form online, and it's, it's uh, fascinating. It's a fascinating read. Yeah, he says that macaques in high density populations do see an increase in interest 
intrasexual aggressive behavior for females when when the population becomes much larger and resources dwindle. Um, but he also says that this is accompanied by an increase in intrasexual grooming. Um, presumably, this is a reaction to kind of try to calm everybody down once there have been aggressive acts. Okay. So um, it would be like everyone's a little stressed out by the overpopulation, but instead of digging nails and claws into each other, everyone just goes and gets their, their hair done. I think so. It's sort of like, oh, sorry about that. I didn't yeah. mean to do that. Let me groom you a little bit. Um, but when there is a chimp population that is artificially elevated, uh, by the way, artificially uh, artificially elevated is important because this is how they're, they're testing this. Mm-hmm. It was found that aggression actually decreased, but self-scratching, which is an indicator of anxiety, increased. And it's thought that this is a form of self-control. Hmm. And this is a, a, a deliberate... Um, act that they're doing in order to avoid any sort of unnecessary conflict. So on one count, we see pro-social actions counteracting stress hormones. Mm-hmm. Instead of tearing it up, we're going to just comb each other's hair and mm-hmm. eat each other's parasites. And we see uh, anxiety and conflict avoidant self-control. So instead of just completely freaking out and murdering my, my fellow chimps, I'm just going to maybe stress a bit and uh, stare at the wall. And scratch myself. Yeah, and if you look at all these models, this is actually good news for us, right? Because we're we're a lot closer to to um, a, a primate than say a cricket. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you take this model and you say, okay, there's going to be an increase in population, there's going to be a dwindling of resources for humans. Um, what is this going to look like for us? How are we going to act? And we should probably take a break. Yes. But when we get back, let's talk about how we may all turn into aloof urbanists. All right, we're back. And, uh, yes, we've talked about uh, what happens when uh, salamanders encounter population uh, density and dwindling resources. We've talked about locusts. We've talked about primates. But really the big question is what does it mean for humans? Cities are not the the exclusive domain of cannibalistic hordes, um, obviously. As far as we know. As far as we know. I mean, There might be some underground sex. Yeah, I mean, even when you look in, in fiction... Um, you see, there are just as many cannibalistic hillbilly families as there are cannibalistic underground dwellers. It, it kind of balances out. So, so even in the, the world of the of imagination, we don't see um, the, the the tendency towards cannibalism uh, in large cities. But uh, but undeniably, cities are places where people are just stacked on top of each other. Resources, various uh, you know definitions of resources are harder to come by. Mm-hmm. Be it um, be it just, uh, you know, simply uh, food, water, uh, a, a, a livelihood, or socialization. There's Sometimes there's just less of it to go around. I have to say, when I was reading the part about the chimpanzees beginning to scratch themselves mm-hmm. um, in anxiety, I couldn't help but think of Woody Allen immediately. Who oh, is it? Is does a, does like he do a, a lot of that? Uh, no, I just kind of was imagining him as as a chimpanzee. Because he is like, the prototypical he... neurotic city dweller. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Someone who has been shaped by his experiences in the city and high density. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what we, what we do know when it comes to that sort of situation. We have talked about the bystander effect before. Um, again, this is, I guess you could look at it as a social norm from not really helping people. And yeah. this has evolved from our continual exposure to these instances that we just kind of get um, hardened to, I guess you'd say. Yeah, and this this reminds me of another sort of, sort of in a way, I feel like kind of an emerging modern Woody Allen um, 
in some senses. Uh, we've mentioned before uh, Louis C.K. Is yeah. a bit, I believe it's the third episode of the first season of the show Louis on FX. Um, he's talking about coming to going to New York Port Authority, mm-hmm. uh, picking up a cousin from the country, and they see uh, a homeless man just lying there uh, against the wall in dreadful shape, just like matted hair. You know, looks like he's on death's doorstep, and. Um, and the, the 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 cousin from the country is like, oh, whoa, what is, is he supposed to be here? What's what should we do? Should we help him? Does he need our help? And uh, and and Louis, who has this very very dark uh, at times goofy, but uh, but at times very dark and um, and reflective. Uh, He's pretty philosophical. Yeah, yeah, very, very philosophical at, at times. Um, he uh, he he says, well, well, yeah, he needs your help. He needs your help more than anything in the world. But but we don't do that here. Yeah, you don't know? don't touch him. Yeah, just keep moving. And that, in essence, is the bystander effect. Um, there are basically uh, four key components, and we've discussed bystander effect mm-hmm. before. But uh, but just to refresh, there are four key components: um, self awareness, the perceived presence of an audience to his or her action that inhibits the individual from acting. He or she does not want to appear foolish or inappropriate in front of others. So Louis is in front of other New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want there's a there's a certain sense of being a city person, you know, like just us, you know, walking around Atlanta, you know, not to gaze up and stare at our few skyscrapers. If we go to New York, we're conscious of the fact that we are supposed to be some sort of a city person even in this much larger city. So mm-hmm. we don't stare up at the skyscrapers. You're not supposed to stand around and look lost because you'll look out of step. You'll look right. like an outsider. And I don't, I don't know, you'll be eaten or something. Well, but, yeah, exactly. By the underground cannibals. Yeah, you yeah. don't want to violate the, the social norms and the, and, the, and the social rules that are in place, which say when it is appropriate to do something and when it is not. Well, and then we talked about before, too, that, that um, there's the psychological component of it where you say someone else will deal with that. The more people that are witness to something, the more or the less likely that person will receive help because everybody's sort of saying, oh, that person will help or that person will help or eventually that person will, the homeless person will go to a shelter and receive help. Right. I mean, this gets into uh, diffuse responsibility, which is another aspect of the bystander effect, which says that in a situation where only a small percentage of the bystanders can take action, responsibility is diffuse. So this is, say, 100 people are standing by, and there's a guy that it's, you know, clearly he needs help. He's laying there right there on on the, the floor of the Port Authority. We can't all help him. No, I mean, we can't all go and pick him up. Only, like, how many people can pick up a human being at a time? How many can reasonably take him to the shelter or to a hospital and since we can't all help him there's this sense that 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 each of us has less of a responsibility for helping well it's a matter of resources too because if you were to help every single person then would you spend your entire day and your your uh material wealth actually helping that person so that is an extreme proposition right there but uh but you know if you were to stop and help in a high density population like New York City. Yeah. You could spend your entire day doing that, and some people actually do. Uh, I did want to mention... Oh, wait, two, two more. I got a th- you got two? Okay. Right, two more, yeah. Bring them on. Okay, just real quick. Self-awareness, and this is just you look to see what everyone else is doing. Yeah. No one else is helping this guy, so maybe I shouldn't either. Um, and then there's blocking, and this is uh, where there's a perception that if you take action, uh, or you could actually make matters worse because you're getting in the way of somebody else who can actually do better uh, with this situation. So it's like, I could try and help this guy, but surely out of all the hundreds of people walking by, someone else here is better suited. Like some one of these people is a an actual care worker or they have some sort of uh, health training. I do not. I am not the person 
for this job. Yeah. And there are a ton of studies that corroborate this. Um, and in fact, in, in sociality in the city, uh, the author talks about how a meta-analysis of studies dealing with pro-social behavior and degrees of helping behavior found that populations greater than 300,000 have lower helping behaviors and lower pro-social behaviors. Do, can you think of a specific example where you've uh, you found yourself wrapped up in the bystander effect? I mean, I, I probably, especially if you take public transportation there, and, and there are encounters like this every day. But I know I have. I can't. Like on the top, from the top of my head, I can't. But I know that there have been times before I've vacillated mm-hmm. and and have finally said, like, "Could you need help?" Or you know what I'm saying? You kind of stand there and try yeah. to assess the situation. Yeah, the I guess the, the the two times that come to mind that were particularly kind of interesting for me. Uh, once I was I was walking. Uh, this was near uh, Crog Tunnel in, in Atlanta. I forget uh, the name. It's a great graffiti tunnel. Great graffiti free zone. And then what's the name of the of the restaurant? Astoria. Astoria. Yeah. yeah. Uh, was leaving there with uh, with my wife and uh, our friend uh, JT, and we were walking down the street there, and uh, and we were just talking about something, and we pass a girl that's like passed out in the gutter there by the uh, we're not really the gutter but by mm-hmm. the sort of shadowy side of the road mm-hmm. by this restaurant, and we all three pass by, and then after we've passed by, you know one of us pipes up and says, "Hey, did you guys see that back there? Should we we should do something?" And then we turn back around and. And the three of us, sort of as a combined effort, went back and checked on her, and she popped up and ran away. But, but see, isn't it interesting that one of you? It took like you know the three of you guys were thinking about it, but it took one person to say, "Well, hey, you guys, before." You yeah, because as before a group. that, we were all. It was kind of like we were seeing what is the social norm here. Mm-hmm. Do we are do we as Atlanta residents, as city dwellers, as modern humans, do we let that go? You know, do we or if we. And does she know what she's doing? Maybe that's her thing. We, you know, and there are all these different levels at which you can sort of rationalize passing it by until you actually turn the question on yourself and say, no, seriously, why did you just pass that? Wait, was she by? okay? Yeah, I think she was just really drunk. Because, well, you know, because okay. a, it's a bar there. And uh, she, she seemed fine. She was not injured or bleeding or anything. I know that ditch. Yeah, I've done that too. You just need a rest sometimes. Yeah. yeah. The only other time that, that comes to mind is when I saw an unintended package. Or what I thought was an unattended package on Marta, and this was this wasn't like immediately after a terrorist thing, but it was still you get it piped in your head. You see an unintended package, you need to tell somebody. It's, I mean, well, and that's our um, train system, right? Yeah. So you don't necessarily want to mess with that. Yeah. yeah. And so there was this pack, and like I spent like a whole like if it was going to blow up, it had plenty of time to blow up with me on that train because I'm sitting there and I'm like, all right, is is that nobody's? And I'm like seeing nobody sitting next to it, and so I finally ring the bell, and then some guy says, hey, that's my package. And I'm like, well, dude, why were you sitting yeah. halfway across the train from it if it wasn't filled with bombs? But anyway, I'm sure everyone has at least a dozen stories of this nature, but I just thought I'd mention a couple. Yeah, and I'd love to hear um, from our listeners, too, if they have any stark examples of this. Um, collective efficacy. This is yes. interesting. This is predicated on humans defending their territory by forging bonds with neighbors and and displaying an unspoken rule of order through the way that their own properties look, which is, I think about this less in an urban setting, but this is what the, the paper um, Sociality in the City is applying it to. But I do understand that because what they're saying, uh, or rather the author, uh, Daniel O'Brien, is saying that, and this is a quote, when collective efficacy is weak, undesirable behaviors like disorderly conduct and public drunkenness go unpunished and are likely to rise. 
Because I guess the point is, is that if you turn a corner and the neighborhood begins to look like it's in disrepair and nobody necessarily cares, the idea is that you could get away with um, some illicit behavior because nobody's necessarily watching or governing this. So this this one's kind of interesting, I and mean, then it kind of falls back on sort of ideas of 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 uh, like a Mayberry kind of situation yeah. where everyone knows everybody and everything's uh, harmonious for that versus a city model where you don't know the person in the apartment across the uh, hall from you, and it creates this I- sense of isolation and also a less of a sense of I need to actually do what I should because I'm I'm held in a social contract with those around me. Well, the idea is that then if you're not connected to your neighbors, then you feel anonymous mm. and you feel like you're not as empowered. And if you're the person who is is mischief-making, then you feel like you have a greater degree of freedom or power because you are anonymous and other people are taking on the same roles. So you don't have this informal governance in check. And when we talk about Mayberry, um, this informal governance is a, is a really good thing to think about. Think about gossip. Think about trying to maintain one's reputation. Think about being socially shunned. Think about sitting on your front porch with a jug band. Mm-hmm. Um, as the sun goes down, which is actually uh, just think about that. Yeah, but but actually, I say that jokingly as a as a Mayberry reference. But um, but actually, you do see uh, theories where people say that uh, that that as when everyone got air conditioning, mm-hmm. that that had a huge detrimental effect on um, on neighborhoods because before that, you did sit on the front lo- front porch, you did sort of hang it. That was the, the only place during uh, the hot summer months that you could actually feel comfortable. If you're inside, you're sweltering. And if you're out on the front porch, you're inside of other front porches. People make the rounds. People say hi to each other. It's not an airtight theory necessarily, but it's but it's an interesting way of looking at things. Then we get air conditionings. So instead of sitting on the front porch, we're back inside. In many cases, we actually wall up that front porch and make it into a, a part of our, our castle. Yeah, and it's interesting that, you know, even if you were um, to try to organize and know as many neighbors as possible and try to put an effort into this, into, to, you know, really crowded areas, mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is the more people that you add, the more fragmented it gets. Right. So it's a difficult thing to organize. But um, Daniel O'Brien, the author of Sociality in the City, did say when, when you look at uh, these locust swarms that there's a silver lining because he says that, recall that it's while... It's not just the glimmering uh, wings of the locust, I said. No, okay. no. A real silver lining, which it, is, you know, it's funny that he's pumping it up like this, because I'll tell you what that silver lining is. And then you decide if it's silver lining. Um, that while members of the swarm were inclined towards cannibalism, their marching formation was an emergent adaption for, uh, for avoiding this threat in others. Hmm. So I think what he's saying is that to some degree, we're pretty self-organizing. Right. And we're going to prevent as much violence as we can, um, you know, like you saw in the primate population, perhaps turn to scratching ourselves or whatnot to try not to express um, some of this frustration and anxiety. Okay. On, on to others. In uh, in his paper, Daniel O'Brien also mentions uh, Stanley Milgram's system overload theory, yeah. which is pretty interesting. And this basically is saying population density acts on adaptive psychology in a number of key ways, one of which is the bystander effect, which we've covered. But he also says that it, it creates an enhanced feeling of vulnerability, mm-hmm. which which having just spent the weekend out in the middle of nowhere in the country and then returning to the city, I mean, I can, I can definitely vouch for that. If you're surrounded by nobody and you're not superstitious or afraid of cryptid 
animals and Bigfoot attacks, uh, or or the stray bullet of a hunter who mistakes you for a deer, then uh, then you you feel pretty safe out in the middle of nowhere, out in that splendid isolation. You move into the city, and you're the the city is teeming with people you don't know, people you on sight don't trust, and uh, who knows what's out there, right? There's just so many people, and you know that a, just percentage wise, a large proportion of them are no good. You think? Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, I don't know. Well, you know, it's like it's like in a sense there. You know, there are cannibal morphs out there. Just right, there there are cannibalistic crickets out there. Not maybe not. They're not actually going to eat you, but they will definitely take from you. And I'm not just saying, oh, they're going to steal my lawn ornaments. But but you know that there are a lot of forces out there that if you come into contact with them, um, it could have a negative effect on you. That being said, that feeling also plays into this whole uh, loss of connection with neighborhood. We distrust everyone. And therefore, we're less likely to forge these these neighborhood bonds that can actually have a beneficial effect on our society. Which, and this is something I, I encounter as a as a homeowner in in Atlanta. You know, it's like you you I, and as also being a, the kind of person who's not the most social uh, animal on the planet. I uh, I find myself thinking, oh, I should I should go meet that new neighbor. You know, that would be the nice thing to do. But then you I should would, bring a pie to that new neighbor. I should bring a, a pie to them and and tell them about the neighborhood association and tell them about the the dude I know was down the street. But then I don't because that's talking to a new person and that's that can be crazy. And that stressful. person could be all sorts of stripes of nuttiness. Well, no, it's not so much that. It's just like talking to a new person. That's stressful. They could just be normal, and that's stressful enough for someone like me. Hmm, okay. Uh, all right, no, I'm thinking about all of this. I'm just taking it in because I, I take the opposite tact where if I'm out in the middle of nowhere, then I'm more frightened than when I'm surrounded by people. I feel more comforted by being around people. Well, well, of course, real quick, I should also point out that high levels of distrust and avoidance of strangers, that's also part of the uh, system overload theory. But to your point, uh, feelings of distrust in, the, in the, the country versus the city, like I said in our fiction, we see just as many cannibalistic hillbilly families as we see cannibalistic... Uh, Livers and dwellers in the subway. True. And I have to say that um, looking at times that I have walked up to a stranger's door or pulled into a stranger's driveway while lost, only once have I had a gun pulled on me. And it was up in the mountains of... Uh, only once. Only once. And it was like the mountains of Kennesaw or somewhere. Well, I'm not as good about the geography of the vast hills uh, surrounding Atlanta. But we were up there for a wedding or something. And uh, yeah, No, not or something. It was a wedding. Uh I helped my wife shoot a wedding for a mm-hmm. friend. We attended it. And then afterwards, we were trying to find a bed and breakfast that we had arranged to stay at. And we're trying to use GPS out there, and it can't get a signal. We're, we're according to it, we're driving on imaginary roads to nowhere. In a sense, we were because we ended up pulling, like, going down this really steep gravel driveway. And some dude, like, walks out on his front porch, and he's just astounded that we're on this driveway. Yeah, for 20 years, yeah. no one has shown up. Yeah. And here you guys are. And so I'm busy trying to get the car to go back up. The, the gravel road because it's not really going and I'm having to you know carefully figure out how traction works on this steep uh, grade and meanwhile my and my wife sees this and she doesn't tell me till, till afterwards but the guy had had grabbed a shotgun she's like you yeah. know just let you focus yeah. I'm just trying to get the car out of there right. I understand that so so yeah just from my own personal experience you know knock on wood but that's the uh, that's the only time that I've had a gun pulled on me uh, when I was lost and just needed some direction, and that was in the country. So there you go. Which makes me wonder if you can still have an isolationist mentality among a great number of people. Yeah. Uh, because that's what we see a lot, a lot of times politically. So that's just a sort of thought experiment. Let's 
revisit 2050 really quickly. Okay. Because we have some thoughts about this. We, we've talked about uh, the population increase, the explosion. Uh, I wanted to also mention something called the Youth Bulge. Yes. Uh, according to Kenneth Wise. Which uh, sounds like a band, but it's not. It does. It sounds kind of one that you could kind of snicker a little bit at the uh, title, but it is not. According to Kenneth Wise of the LA Times, of the 2 billion or more people who will be added to the planet by 2050, 97%, 97% of the 2 billion are expected to be born in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Um, he says, led by the poorest, most volatile countries. Yeah. And this is worth pointing out, too, and this is from the same article. All right, so in many developing countries, runaway population growth creates hordes of restless young men. Mm -hmm. And in about 80% of the world's civil conflicts since the 1970s, um, they have occurred in countries with young, fast-growing populations, again, youth bulges. And that's according to the Population uh, Action International nonprofit. So even if you look back before 1970... Uh, a youth boom contributed to the rise of the Nazis in the 1930s Germany mm-hmm. uh, and to Jap- Japan's military ambitions in the Pacific. Uh, and m- even more recently, you, looked to, uh, you also looked at stuff like uh, Tiananmen Square, um, uh, protest in China. You see, uh, you see young activists. Uh, and also uh, in the U.S., uh, look at the 1960s, look at the 70s, look at uh, Wall Street, uh, Occupy Wall Street movement. You're seeing large numbers of young people engaged in these uh, these activities. Yeah, and I wanted to point out too that you know there are certain uh, parts of the world which will stabilize in population. China, for example, right mm-hmm. now it has like 52 percent of the world's population. By 2050, they will add only one percent more. Mm-hmm. So really, you are seeing the the greater growth in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And uh, Weiss does talk about Afghanistan in his article as an example of this. He says that since the U.S.-led invasion in 2001, the population has swelled from 23 million to 33 million, and that nearly three-fourths of Afghans are under the age of 30. Uh, the median age is 16 compared to 37 in the United States. So he's saying this is a real problem because if you have a sluggish agrarian economy like they do, and you have men, young men who can't find legitimate employment, and um, you also have young men who want to get married but they require a dowry, mm-hmm. then they're going to go probably toward um, illicit activities or toward the Taliban to get some source of money uh, or food to sustain themselves. So you're saying, like, even if they're not too interested in the Taliban's politics or agenda, then they're probably going to go toward that route anyway because they don't have a lot of options to choose from. The other huge problem here is that, um, and again, Afghanistan as the model here, women truly are considered second class citizens and they don't have many rights and they don't have access to birth control. And you will see time and time again that uh, young girls who are educated, who have access to birth control, will delay marriage. They will delay having children and they'll have less of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, you know, I bring this up only because when when you're in that situation in Afghanistan and the average amount of children a female has is seven, seven babies, that's, that's astounding um, for the lack of resources available to those children. Yeah, so there's there is uh, there's a comparison to be made there. I mean, you could think of uh, these uh, these angry young men as larval salamanders in a pool of that's that's quickly filling up that where the resources are are not optimal. And what are they going to do to deal with that situation? So we've talked about this this uh, problem before, and it's not just a question and and solution of urban design. 
that certainly helps. Um, and rethinking agriculture to meet our needs, that helps too. But it really is like, what does this look like in 2050 and how can you help people best, um, and particularly this youth bulge? And how can you help society not just to self-govern, but to organize itself to, to really accommodate all the various problems that could arise? Yeah. So there you go. If you live in the city, uh, I hope you'll think about all of this as you walk the streets uh, today or, or tomorrow. and uh, or Information looking in, behind in you. Information running from the cannibal behind you and chasing after that tasty-looking uh, stranger in front of you. And if you live in the, uh, in the country, I... Uh, I you know, think about all these things when you plan your next trip to the city, or or go, Robert shows up, just or, or looking I show for up a, looking a for B&B. directions. Yeah. yeah, you've got to protect that meth lab, I guess. But um, <laughs> that's the only thing I could figure. It's like, dude, yeah. dude, is that crazy about someone showing up? He must have something to hide, or captives in the in the cellar that I almost Oof. that I almost joined. Um, so, <laughs> so let's call over the robot uh, and get a few uh, listener mails from him. And while he's doing that, I wanted to mention that uh, we had uh, an email from Linda, and she wrote in to correct me about the FMLA Act, and I'm very glad that she did. Um, I had stated that... Oh, this is the milk episode. Yeah, this is from the milk episode. I had stated that um, women get six weeks of unpaid leave off. It's, in fact, 12 weeks. Um, So I'm glad that she pointed that out. And when we talk about the FMLA, we're talking about the Family Medical Leave Act, and that's not just for for children but also for taking care of other members of your family. And it is available to people who have worked at their job for a year. And to companies, they they have to actually offer it if they have more than 50 employees. Okay. There we go. Cool. And uh, I should also note uh, that uh, and I corrected this on uh, Facebook and Twitter, but for those of you who don't follow those, uh, I also in the milk episode, uh, in, without thinking, I mentioned Romulus and Remus, and I think I either said or implied that they uh, breastfed from a cow, when of course they breastfed from a, uh, a she wolf in the Roman mythology. So uh, my apologies to Romulus, my apologies to Remus, and of course my apologies to the she wolf. Well, and I like how you call them Rami and Remy. Rami and Remy, yeah. yeah. Well, that was, those were their kid names. They're, they're embarrassed when you call them that now, but at the time. Uh, so, hey, let's uh, let's read a couple of these mails. Uh, these are some quick ones. Uh, we, we, we get more mail than we have space to, to read on, on air these days, but uh, and certainly this is a longer episode, so I'll just read a couple of short ones. Uh, Andy writes in and says, Dear Julian Robert, just wanted to thank you for putting out your science podcast. I really love that you add a lot of phil- philosophical ruminations to the information you impart. It's a great extra element that keeps me coming back for more. Thanks again. Sincerely, Andy. And, yeah, that's what... Um, I mean, that's one of the things we love about it is uh, it's not only talking about these, these very scientific topics or even kind of out there topics, but ultimately bringing it all back to the human condition and, and our perception of the cosmos and our place in it. And how does it potentially shift or outright change that proposition? And a lot of the feedback that we get from you guys really helps to fuel that as well. Yeah. Um, we've gotten some incredible thoughts from you all. All right, and here's one from Jarek. Uh, Jarek writes in uh, in response to our Seven Deadly Sins series, which uh, which uh, was a real popular one with uh, with you guys and gals. He writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. I'm a new listener to the show, and I just finished listening to the Seven Deadly Sins series. I was wondering if anyone brought up the correlation between the Seven Deadly Sins and many of America's major holidays. The thought first hit me several years ago after I had just stuffed myself with turkey on Thanksgiving, 
Thanksgiving for gluttony, eat till you can't move and take a nap, Valentine's, Valentine's Day for lust, a whole day dedicated to leather and lace, <laughs> Labor Day for sloth, have a day off, you deserve it, Christmas for greed, presents, presents, 4th of July for wrath, celebrate your country's independence by blowing up a small portion of it, um, and Veterans Day for pride. I don't have any commentary for this one yet. Uh, I don't have a holiday for envy, but I would love to hear if you have an idea for, for one. I also realize that you may need need a somewhat cynical point of view for the holidays, but I submit that a decent argument could be made for each of the sins. I really enjoyed your podcast. Please keep up the great work, Jarek. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, all those comparisons, I think, are, are, are pretty apt. Uh, but indeed, is there one for envy? We found uh, envy the Christmas for, could be for envy, envy as well. Yeah. Could do dual duty. Envy. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, envy, because, you know, we talked about the interconnectedness of some of these, and envy coming down to, at heart, it's about grasping for something that you don't have mm-hmm. uh, uh, on a certain level. So you could you could see Christmas as that. You're, you're grasping for something. You, you see things you want, and you desire them. So you could make an argument there, I think, more so than you could for, like, say, Patty's Day, which is probably just another... Another sloth. That's just, yeah, as I say, that's, that's gluttony, <laughs> gluttony as well. Holiday, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, and then uh, Jarek also adds, uh, while writing this, I was listening to the Way of the Sword podcast and feel it should be noted that watching a real sword fight is not nearly as entertaining as watching the movie fights. I have fenced for several years in college, and when friends and family would come to watch competitions, most would get bored before too long. Uh, while the added blood effects of a real fight uh, would be exciting, I doubt it would be overly enjoyable to witness an extremely painful death. So... It, it, that's interesting that he brings that up because, you know, I think I thinking to sword fights that have been most entertaining in in, in films, like they, I guess that you have to you have to walk that line between believability and enjoyability. I'm just imagining now that that fencers should start to uh, smuggle in blood capsules. Yeah. Right, and employ them at the right moment. I really feel like you guys would get huge sponsorship dollars if you did this. Or if they incorporated more of the uh, the old swashbuckling, like you know, you, you run up a chair and then you sort of like tip forward with it, things like that. Oh, Roll over yeah. the back of the table. So the more, if they just held Olympic fencing events inside crowded pubs, that might that might help. Although somehow it just it, it doesn't seem like the right fit, does it? Yeah. The fencing, I think, is always going to be just sort of a white glove thing and yeah. beautiful and, and and a wonderful art. But yeah. blood capsules, pubs, yeah. crazy costumes. Yeah, paint those suits up. I don't know. I mean, of course, this is me talking. I, I, yeah, I, I tend to gravitate towards uh, gravitate towards uh, professional wrestling because I find that it is uh, it is just fake enough. Um, whereas I find real fighting is either boring or disturbing. But if you if you if it's if it's fake enough, if it's theatrical enough, then I can get behind it. And I guess I'm kind of the same way with sword fights. I don't want to see a clinical uh, exhibition of uh, someone's fencing prowess, uh, but I also don't want to see a, a like a plotless, just you know, flashing images of laser swords hitting each other. It needs to sort of tell a story. So, what you guys are hearing, I think, are the seeds of a science of wrestling podcast <laughs> to come. We'll see. Uh, anyway, I've rambled enough, uh, and now it's your turn to ramble. So, if you have something you would like to share with us, if you have some interesting notes of bystander effect in your life. Um, if you have thoughts about cannibal morphs and uh, and, and just anything re- regarding uh, uh, stuff that we've talked about in this episode or other episodes, let us know about it. You can find us on Facebook, where we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. You can find us on Twitter, where our handle is Blow the Mind. 
And uh, new uh, to us, you can also find us on Tumblr, where we are stuffed to blow your mind. Uh, one word, do a search for that. And also, I've been linking to it off the other profiles. We just started that up. We're really getting into Tumblr, still learning all the, the awesome things it can do. So uh, if that's your thing, find us there and uh, follow us. And always feel free to send us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 